So we're looking at a message this morning entitled, Are We Making a Difference? It's from the Gospel of Matthew. We're finally moving on from the Beatitudes. We're in chapter 5 of the Gospel of Matthew, beginning in verse 13. We'll turn there in just a moment. I know I tell you guys, it seems like every week, what a blessing it is for me to be serving as your interim pastor during this time, but it's true. I do feel very blessed to be your pastor, and I'm, and I'm fast growing to love this church as I get to know more and more of you throughout the weeks. There's so much that I believe God wants to do in and through Richland Baptist Church, and I'm excited about your future, a future that will include lost people coming to know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, a future that will include lots of baptisms, we hope, new levels of spiritual maturity and commitment and just enthusiasm among those who are longtime members, ministry and, and mission from the Tri-Cities to the ends of the earth. I look forward to seeing how God's going to glorify Himself in and through Richland Baptist Church in the months and years ahead. And while I'm here, let me just say a word about your staff that I have a privilege of working with, uh, BJ and Scott and Travis. These guys are wonderful. You already know that. I don't have to tell you that. But I hope you'll take the opportunity, every opportunity you get, to show how much you appreciate them. I've seen how hard they work in the absence of a senior pastor and an interim pastor that doesn't do much, okay? So they have lots of responsibilities, and they're wearing extra hats these days, and, and we don't want to get them worn down at all. So you encourage them, because that, that really gives them some fuel. If you'll do that every chance you get show how much you appreciate him as do I. Many of you know that we raised a 26-year-old Down syndrome grandson. His name is Kyler. Some of you have met him. He's been to church here a couple of times. Uh, uh, you saw some of you were treated to one of his, we call them fits. Any of y'all have fits? Yeah, you do. I <laughs> On the way out from experiencing God last week, some of you got to see that. Don't raise your hands. I know you did, but... So he, he's prone to do that, and, and we're in a kind of a fishbowl with him, and people see those kind of things and hear some of the things we said, and, and, it, and it makes us kind of conspicuous at times, and we're aware of that. His talkativeness is another thing. He talks about everything that happens at our house, and listen, make sure you understand this. He makes up a lot of things, too, about what goes on in our house. <laughs> and that does keep us on our toes, both for the potential of a fit that's going to have a source that we can't figure out, we don't know anything about, and for his loquacious nature. And, of course, we don't have anything, kidding aside, we don't have anything serious to hide. Vicki and I have always been what you see is what you get uh, kind of people. Still, pastors and wives are, are aware that they live in, in a fishbowl of sorts, and it may seem unfair from time to time, but it just goes with the territory. It's just the way that it is. It makes me, in fact, it makes me... I want to be more of the kind of pastor that you would be proud to call as your interim pastor for this season. And more importantly, it makes me want to be more of the kind of pastor that my Father in Heaven would be proud of. Of course, it's important for us all to remember that we're all being watched by the unbelieving world around us. We're all in a, in a fishbowl of sorts. Those yet to believe are watching us. They're watching to see how we act. They're watching to see how we react. They're listening to what we say. They're listening for what we do not say. They want to know if, there, if there's anything to this faith that we claim to possess. They're waiting to see if we'll say something or do something to reveal what they imagine is the real us hiding behind the facade of our personal public persona. 
I'm aware of that. I work out at the golf course, as some of you know, here at Columbia Point, and I'm around those yet to believe all the time, good men. I work with some, and I, and I play golf with some of them, and I'm aware that they're watching me. They're going to see how I react when I play poorly and what I say or what I don't say, and when I'm working, how I interact with people. I, I, I feel their eyes and their ears upon me at, at all times, and I understand the responsibility I have to be a witness there in the, the hours that I spend at Columbia Point. In our text, Jesus begins to speak about the relationship that we're to have with this watching world. Of course, this has been preceded by the Beatitudes that we've looked at over the last couple of, of months, which teach us about the character that we are to display as Christians. We've seen that. They challenge us to put ourselves in a position where the Holy Spirit can, can work in our lives and transform us, the end goal that we might be more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And now... Now, beginning with our text today, we, we reach a, a new level in Jesus' teaching. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it like this. Having learned what we are, we now go on to what we must be. So, so we have instruction here as to the relationship we as Christians are to have with the world around us. And, and that's the need. Because we don't have an option, barring entering a convent or a, or a monastery to live in isolation from the world around us. It, it's true that we are not of this world, but we are in this world. And we're called, therefore, to make a distinct, to make a, a positive, have a positive relationship with the around, world around us, to influence our world for good, ultimately for the glory of God. All the activities in our everyday lives ought to glorify God. As you and I interact with others in the course of our ordinary day, they ought to know something. They ought to know that we trust in Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. Our words and actions ought to glorify God and point others to Jesus Christ. That's being salt and light, beloved. The Bible makes it plain that it is God's will for us that we be salt and light in the places we live and work. A commune of Christians living and working together only with other Christians would not, could not accomplish God's whole purpose in the world. He does not call us out of the world. Jesus, in His high priestly prayer to His Father, recorded in John 17, said, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Peter writes, and he's speaking to us, church family, in 1 Peter 2, 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Our Father does not remove the need for us to interact with the lost world. He doesn't take us out of our workplaces. He doesn't remove us from society or from the culture because it is through His scattered saints that He spreads a passion for the supremacy of Himself in all things throughout the culture, both for His glory and for the joy of His people. That is the influence that we're to have, church family. A Peanuts cartoon showed... Peppermint Patty talking to Charlie Brown, and she said, Chuck, guess what? First day of school, and I got sent to the principal's office, and it's your fault, Chuck. Charlie Brown says, my fault? 
My fault? How can it be my fault? Why are you always saying everything is my fault? And Patty answered, well, Chuck, you're my friend, aren't you? You should have been a better influence on me. <laughs> so Peppermint Patty's trying to pass the blame here, no doubt, but she's right, church family. She's right in one sense. We should be a good influence on our friends, on our coworkers, on all of those who are in our sphere of influence. We most definitely do have some sort of influence for good or for bad. People are watching us. What do they see? What they see should have a, a positive influence on them. Jesus told us that we're to have a positive influence in the world. Listen to what he says. We're going to read Matthew 5, 13 through 16, and I would ask you to please stand in the honor of the reading of God's Word. Jesus speaking says, You are the light of the world. You are the, excuse me, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we're so familiar with this passage on a long list of texts that we have read and studied and perhaps even memorized. We pray today, Lord, that by the power of your Holy Spirit speaking through me and opening up our hearts and our minds that we would hear a fresh word. We'd be reminded of some timeless truths but also be challenged to a new level of walk. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. The question... We as individual Christians must ask ourselves, is to what degree is this going on in our lives, this being salt and light? I've seen a lot of brothers and sisters over the years and, and been well aware of the influence that they have had and, and are having. And in my short time here, I've seen the influence that many of you are, are having. But we have a problem in the church. And by the church, I mean the church universal, not necessarily the local church. Of course, no local church is exempt from this problem, not even RBC. Here's the problem. Here's the problem that keeps neutralizing, even obscuring the good that many Christians do. And it's this. The problem is that many who call themselves Christians are in reality no different from the world. A.W. Tozer once wrote, Many of us Christians have become extremely skillful in arranging our lives so as to admit to the truth of Christianity without being embarrassed by its implications. Ouch. I fear he's right. And the statistics seem to say he is right. George Barna's research has uncovered the fact that it, in virtually every discernible character, category of moral and social behavior, there is little to no distinguishable difference between the church-going public and the non-church-going public. And listen, beloved, don't think for a second that the lost world around us doesn't see that, doesn't know that about us. And could that be the reason why our influence has not been felt in a way that points other people to Jesus? Let me throw some numbers at you that just boggled my mind when I heard them. 
Roughly 65% of the population of 332 million Americans, 65% of 332 million claim to be Christians. When they're asked, they say they are Christians. By the way, that's down 12% from just a decade ago. But that still means there are over 215 million people in our country who, when asked, say they are Christians. And of that number, again, just over 250 million, just over 25% of them identify as evangelical or born-again Christians. 25% of 215 million Christians claim to be born-again believers, which we define as those who have confessed and repented of their sins, entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, believing they were saved by grace apart from their own works. You think of it. 332 million Americans, 65%, that's almost 260 million Americans who identify as Christians, and then 25% of that number who claim to be born again, that's 54 million people. Numbers aren't precise. I mean, they could never be. We could never know what's in a person's heart or how and why people answer survey questions the way they do. But just for the sake of argument, let's say the numbers are close. And that still represents 54 million, plus or minus, genuine, sold-out, committed, born-again believers in America. That's one in six nearly. Here's the point. What kind of influence upon our culture ought 54 million people, 54 million committed Christians, 54 million folks living like they are genuine, born-again believers have? Is your life, is my life making a difference? What kind of difference are we making? Jesus is clear that we are to make a difference. So let's look in the remainder of our time at the, at the explicit implications of what Jesus is saying and see if we can apply them to where we live. And the first thing we see is that we're to have a protective influence. A protective influence. In verse 13, You are the salt of the earth, Jesus says, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. In our culture today, we, we miss the real value of salt. While those listening to Jesus in that day, His original hearers would have understood it clearly. And those to whom Jesus was speaking were a basically uneducated bunch of, of fishermen, right? And when they heard themselves described as the salt of the earth, that would have come across as a compliment, a great compliment, an honor, because salt was a necessity of life in those times, and it had a value to it, great value was attached to it. Again, it was so important that it was sometimes used for money. Roman soldiers of Jesus' day were at times paid with it. And I'm sure you already know this. The word salary comes from the Latin word salarium, which referred to those payments to the Roman soldiers. We still use the phrase, worth their salt, right? To refer to a person's value. We don't think much about salt because it's so common we can get as much of it in any form, in its pure form as we want. It's just that little bottle on top of the table with the holes in it. But listen, if we were completely dependent on salt to preserve our food, if it was so valuable that it could be used monetarily, we would develop an entirely different perspective. 
So with an understanding of the value of salt to those original hearers, let's turn our attention to something else. When Jesus says they are the salt of the earth, what do you think he's implying about the earth there? He clearly implies that the earth is decaying, that it is rotten, that it is polluted, that it is offensive. And that's what the Bible has to say about the world. We do live in a fallen, sinful, corrupt world, a world inclined to evil and broken by wars and injustice. As a result of of sin and the fall, the world in general tends toward the decadent. Biblically speaking, that's the only way to look at our world apart from Christ. And there are those in the world who are going to say, well, you know, the world tends to evolve upwards and for the betterment of of all people. Beloved, the the reality is exactly the opposite. That this world left to its own devices will only tend to devolve morally. And we shouldn't be surprised by what we've seen happen in our culture We we shouldn't be surprised at all when we've seen how our world, our nation has turned away from God. We ought to be surprised that things aren't worse than they actually are. And now back to the salt. There are a lot of theories that are offered as to exactly what Jesus meant here when he used this symbol. And some have said that since salt is white, it represents purity. And that that makes sense. Uh, Purity is certainly something that we as Christians ought to strive for. Others have, others have said that since salt adds flavor, the Christians should add flavor to the world. And certainly we ought to be. We ought to, be, we ought to add seasoning and spice, something different to the world than what they know. Others have said that since salt stings wounds, the Christians ought to prick the conscience of the world and be an irritant to ungodly behavior. That one makes sense. And, and then some have said that since salt creates thirst, Christians should create a thirst for God and those who don't know Him. And all those ideas make sense. But I believe the key idea that Jesus was communicating here was that Christians, like salt, are meant to be a protective influence upon society. You see, the issue was the saltiness of salt. When salt loses its saltiness, its its potency, it's no longer good for anything, Jesus says. So among other things, salt resists the the deterioration, the rot of perishable items, and that's precisely what we're supposed to do, church family. We should be a protective, even even a a purifying agent against the rot and the deterioration of of a perishing society. But are we being that? Are we doing that? And if not, why? To have the kind of protective, purifying effect we're meant to have, beloved, we must be different. We must be fundamentally different. We can't make a difference in our world if we are not different, distinguishable from the world. Our lives have to be different. Our relationships have to be different. Our homes have to be different. Our thoughts have to be different. Our words have to be different. And being different is difficult. I get it, especially for young people in this age. Yes, we live in a dark and decadent world, and swimming upstream against the flow of our culture is hard. But just because it's hard does not mean we are not called to it and cannot do it. My question is, are we even trying? 
or even trying to be different that we might have influence. Because I want to know how in a nation where there are 350,000 religious congregations meeting as we speak, how can that be that we tolerate the legal murder of 64 million and counting innocent unborn children? How can it be that a nation where nearly 70% of the population claim to be Christians, that it gets to a place where 71% of the people support same-sex marriage? Or get to the place where one-fifth of the U.S. public and fully one-third of those who are under 30 are religiously unaffiliated. They call themselves nuns, N-O-N-E-S. As compared to just 9% of those, 65 or should be over. Pew Research predicts that by 2070, less than 40% of the population of America will claim to be Christian. The research, and stay here, let's camp out here for just a minute. The research shows that the main reason is not declining birth rates. Our birth rates are declining. We might think that's part of it. It's not non-Christian immigrants. A lot of non-Christian immigrants. We might think that's part of it. That's not it. It's something called switching. Christians deciding they are not, excuse me, the word not should be in there. Christians deciding they are not Christians any longer. And that happens to those mostly between the ages of 15 and 29, additional 7% disaffiliating from the faith after the age of 30. It used to be, it used to be that when you met someone on the street and you knew their parents were Christians, you could just about count on those people being Christians. It's not that way anymore. That's not true anymore. For about a third of them, it's not true anymore. I mean, how, how can such a, such a nation... So clearly blessed, so clearly founded upon Christian principles, allow its Christian heritage to be watered down and in many cases wiped out. How can such a, a nation sit back while its entertainment mediums become cesspools of moral filth? How can such a nation allow the vast majority of its college and university teachers and professors become evangelists of secularism? The answer is, the answer is that the salt has lost its saltiness, its taste, its influence, its impact, its power. Beloved, when we lose the qualities of Christ-likeness that make us distinct, that make us distinguishable from the world, that make us different, and we become like the culture around us, or we begin to compromise the standards by which we are called to live, we can no longer have a positive impact. We become instead a hindering force rather than a protective, purifying force. When, when the passion to preserve good and resist evil is absent among God's people, tyranny and oppression cannot be far behind. That's what Christ meant when He said that such believers are no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet, that for all practical purposes, those people are good for nothing. Despite what the talk show hosts and the liberal writers and the movie stars tell us, the world is not evolving toward a superior, superior moral place. Absolutely, we've had some wonderful technological advances that have come along through the years that make our everyday lives 
uh, more interesting and less burdensome, but we are still plagued. We are still plagued by the same moral decay that has characterized humanity since the fall. And it's not going to get better because we're somehow evolving to a higher state. But God. I love those words. How many of you have a favorite but God verse? But God, though we were rich in sin, we were sinners. Christ died for us. You have your own but God verse. But God has brought revival and He has brought renewal to our nation in the past and I hold out hope that we will once again see it. Jesus may have had in mind any one or all those metaphorical images for salt that we talked about earlier when He uttered this saying, but this much is clear. The statement, you are the salt of the earth, is, is not merely a mild word of encouragement. He doesn't say, you could be the salt of the earth. He doesn't say... You ought to be the salt of the earth. He doesn't say, I hope you will become. He says, you are. Pure sodium chloride does not change its chemical compound, but if the salt is compromised, if it loses its saltiness, becomes tasteless, it becomes foolish. That's the Greek word, the Greek word translated here, uh, lost its taste in the ESV is literally the word foolish, marotino, foolish. And it's good for nothing, Jesus says, simply to be thrown out. Jesus is telling you and me that bland, feeble Christianity is is absurd and worthless as saltless salt and that they continue using such salt and expecting that salt to serve its intended purpose is foolish. If Christians, beloved, if we lose our distinct tang, our protective and purifying qualities, our capacity to enhance the yield of the soil, which is the world, our, our willingness to spend ourselves for others, then the world is the worst off for it. And that worthless, saltless salt is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out like so much garbage. But, but when Christians get right with God and begin to express their Christianity through their lifestyle and begin to, to vocalize the gospel of Jesus Christ to the unbelievers, that society cannot help but be changed. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, Most competent historians are agreed in saying... What undoubtedly saved England from a revolution such as that experienced in France at the end of the 18th century was nothing but the evangelical revival. This was not because anything was done directly, but because masses of individuals had become Christians and were living this better life and had this higher outlook. The whole political situation was affected, and the great acts of Parliament which were passed in the last century were mostly due to the fact that there were such large numbers of Christians found in the land. Remember, 54 million was the number. What difference are you and I making? Have we lost our saltiness? Church family, this is the great call upon us in this time. We see how the culture has decayed. We see how rotten 
It has become across all classes of people. And, beloved, nothing can protect and purify our culture except the presence and influence of individual Christians who, by their words and actions, control corruption and work to subdue evil. And every one of us in this room has the role to play in that action of persevere, excuse me, of preserving and purifying. The great hope for our culture is an increasing number of Christians being what they were meant to be. A check, a curb, a cleansing component of our culture, preserving it and turning it back from the direction that it's heading. So we are to have a protective influence and we are to have a perceptible influence. Look at verses 14 through 16. You are the light of the world, Jesus says. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So Jesus continues this affirmation of his disciples by telling them that they are the light of the world. If they're the light, they're going to be visible like, like the light of a city set on a hill. A city set on a hill, you've seen them before. It's hard to miss. It makes a strong impression. Everybody that goes by it takes notice of it. And then he expands that notion by saying that no one lights a lamp only to conceal it by putting it under a basket. It's not so much that people should not hide the light under the basket. It's that it's something that no one would ever do. They just don't do something like that. And the point is that God doesn't do things like that either. God does not provide a, a lamp to enlighten the world and then conceal it under a basket. God sends the light into the world to shine. Isaiah proclaimed that Israel was to be a light to the nations, a beacon that would draw those in darkness to God and to God's city set on Mount Zion. But there were some who mistook responsibility for special privilege. They shone only on themselves. The psalmist declares, the, the word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. But the scribes, that's what I'm talking about, they hid the lamp of God. And they added burdensome restraints to the word of God. So that it did not give light to anyone. Those who were arrogantly confident that they were the guides to the blind. And those providing light to those in darkness turned out to be blind guides themselves in their own darkness. Jesus identifies them as that in Matthew 23. Jesus says that it is His disciples, His disciples who are now the light of the world. They, we are the community, the new community of Zion set on a hill that will draw people to God. And Jesus intends for you and me to shine forth His truth. Let your light shine here as a the English translation, and the only way to, re it, to render this third-person imperative in the Greek is just not a good way to, to render it. But the translation, unfortunately, implies that we are only to allow our light to shine. In, in the Greek, it's a command to shine the light. Jesus says, you are the light of the world, so shine. Church family, our lives should be lives that reflect something more than that the world has to offer because we have more to offer than they have. We have Jesus. He saved us. He's forgiven us. He's changed our hearts. He's given us hope. 
He's put joy into our lives. He's put His love into our lives. He's set our feet upon a rock that cannot be moved. And if Jesus is not making a difference in your life, then you are either lost, you've never been born again, or you have regressed. You've backslidden. You've turned away from God. And if you're here this morning, I want you to listen, please. You can return home just like the prodigal. And you can do it today. And it starts with you confessing and repenting of any besetting sin, any habitual sin that's preventing you from being in right relationship with the Father. Of getting rid of any idol that is obscuring your view of God. And then begin to pray for God to correct your desires. And through His Word to, to, to reshape your life that you might walk in holiness. By the way, this is a good practice for all of us every single day. Ask Him to extend His sovereign power over every part of your life, your thoughts, your emotions, your desires, your ambitions, and to rule you so fully that you want to obey Him with a joyful, captivated heart. Beloved, if you're that person who has fallen away from God, these actions can return you to right relationship with Him and put you in a place where the fire of your first love can be rekindled. One of the ways that the disciples shine their light is through their good works. We've all felt this before. We can be tempted to, to get kind of showy in our display of piety. Maybe we want to dazzle others with our good works so that we're glorified least a little bit, not God. But Jesus makes it clear here that our good works should never direct attention back to ourselves, but to our Father in heaven. The purpose of shining our light is to point others to God who is working in us. So let me ask you, beloved, is the light of Christ shining through us? Are we allowing His light to be made visible in our lives? Is the light flickering? Has it perhaps gone out? Has your passion for God become religious ritual and routine? Don't hide your light under a pot. Take it out. Hold it high. We're not created to be secret disciples. We're not created to, to have nice little quiet discussions on religious issues. We are newly created as ambassadors for God, set on fire by the Holy Spirit for all to see. I heard Dr. MacArthur share this story once. I'll close with it. He began, A magazine once carried a series of pictures, and that series of pictures depicted one of the saddest stories imaginable. The first picture was of a vast wheat field in Kansas. It's a farm in western Kansas, and from horizon to horizon, to horizon, all you could see were the waving fields of wheat. If you've driven up through the Palouse when the wheat was growing tall, you know what I'm talking about, right? The second picture was of a mother in distress inside of her farmhouse in the middle of that wheat field. She had a small boy who had somehow wandered away from the house into that wheat field, and he was so small, he was so small that he couldn't be seen, and she couldn't find him. She called for her husband, and the two of them had searched all day long for the little fella, and they finally decided to call the neighbors who began to search frantically all over the field but without out success. And 
They knew the boy was too little to see above the wheat and to find his own way out, and so the picture showed his mother in great distress. And then the third picture depicted all of the people who had heard about this little boy being lost, gathered in the field in the morning, joining their hands, hand to hand, in this great long line of humanity, linked only by their hands, sweeping through that field from one end to the other. And then the fourth picture was a heartbreaker. The last picture was a picture of a father standing over the body of his little son. They had finally found him, but it was too late. He had succumbed to the frigid air of the night. And underneath that final picture of the weeping father were these words, Oh God, if only we had joined hands sooner. Beloved, if only we had joined hands sooner. Church family, those are words that will absolutely break our hearts if they become true of us, if we allow disunity, if we allow anything to get in the way of our search for the lost. And listen, we don't have to look too hard, do we? Jesus said as he looked over the fields, the fields are ripe for the harvest, but the laborers are what? Few. You and I both know there's a world of lost men. There's a world of lost women. There's a world of lost boys and girls lost out in the field that is the world. And they're searching for answers. They're searching for a home. But they can't see the Father's house above the wheat of the world. And they're perishing in the cold night of sin. And when the morning dawns, it will be too late. The Lord Jesus Christ here in Matthew 5, 13 through 16 is, 16 is saying to Richland Baptist Church, join hands. Join hands. Be soft and light. Go through the field that is the world and find all of those who are desperately in need of your influence and your message of the gospel. And listen, one or two cannot do it by themselves. Not even a faithful handful can do it. We must all join hands. And we must all, each one of us, be soft and light. We've got to join hands and in unity, both with one another and with Christ. And starting with our own sphere of influence, be the salt and light that we are commanded and empowered to be. That's the message that Jesus is giving us right here. And listen, don't get overwhelmed by the enormity of the task. I'm going to give you some application here. If we all start with just one, maybe two, one or two people, and begin simply praying for them. Pray for their salvation, yes, but pray also for a growing, insatiable desire within you for the welfare of their eternal soul. Beloved, our desire for the lost must increase to the point where it becomes a burden upon our hearts and our minds. And then pray for ways you can begin to know them personally and for opportunities where you can intentionally reach out to develop a relationship with them, spend time with them. And I know we are busy people. Busy people. And most of us don't see a time for such relationships and how that's going to come about. But, beloved, that's the cost. That's part of the cost. That's part of the sacrifice. 
and then begin to pray for ways you can creatively and winsomely bring the gospel to bear upon their life. We actually have to articulate the gospel, beloved. We can't just live a good, even godly life. People will think that's how you go to heaven. It's the gospel we must articulate to them. But then we've got to earn the right to share those kind of powerful, life-transforming words. And listen, I guarantee you in your efforts to share the gospel, you won't be successful with everyone. But I promise you, you will not be successful with anyone if you do not try. R.C. Sproul once said, Christ has commissioned us to be salt and light in the world. We have no option but to obey. Are we? Will we obey? Will we make a difference? We should. Jesus commands it. Are we making a difference? We can if we surrender to Him and obey Him. Are we making a difference? If we live for Him, we will. Would you pray with me? Father, we are thankful for your words of truth, your holy scripture, that is, that never fails to penetrate our hearts. It is my prayer that the exposition has been faithful today, and that everything about this message has been truth, or else it is worthless. And I pray, Father, that we'll be impacted by the charge you have placed upon us to be salt and light, to rest in the empowerment you've given us to be salt and light, to set aside those things in our lives that prevent us from being salt and light, and to begin to make a difference for your kingdom and the world around us. I pray for those who were here this morning and, and they were among those for whom they can't make a difference because they, they're lost. They're without you, Father. I pray today they have heard something that will draw, that will draw them to you. Pray for those who are here this morning, Lord, and they are they're lost, they're, they're mired in sin, they've, they've just drifted away. They don't even know why they've drifted away, Father. They just drifted away. And they're, not, they're colder than they used to be. They're not as warm to, to you and to your spirit as they once were. And they, they want to come back, Father. They're just, they're just struggling with it. I pray today that what they've heard will draw them back to yourself as the prodigal did, and they would come home. I pray for those who are searching for a church home, Lord, the They've cast around. They've looked at other places. They've been here before, perhaps. They're looking for a place to put down roots. I pray today, Lord God, that, that as they see a church that's committed to the faithful exposition of your word, that's generous in their giving, that's committed to, to sharing your gospel from the, from the Tri-Cities to the ends of the earth, that this would be a place that perhaps they would desire to put down roots if, if you're so leading them. Thank you, Father, for being in our midst today, as you have promised, for touching our hearts and affecting our minds and transforming us as only you can. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.